You're listening to Go with Jamarlin Martin. We have a go hard or go home approach as we talk to the leading tech leaders, politicians, and influencers. Let's go. Today we have Jamila Lemieux, the magic maker, a writer, speaker, also an activist in our community. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us a little bit about your background and how did you get into digital media where, you know, you've been in the game for a while. I'm originally from Chicago. Uh, I went to Howard and I studied theater there. And I declaring acting as my major definitely came as a surprise to my friends and family. Uh, you know, folks said, you're a great writer. Why aren't you majoring in communications or PR, or, you know, um, English, something related to that. And I was like, no, this is what I want to do. And I made a promise to my parents that I wouldn't be a starving artist, that I would teach, uh, you know, if acting didn't happen for me immediately. And before I even finished school, I got into teaching. I was like, okay, I'm not going to pursue theater. I, I just didn't have the courage and believe in myself. Uh, did education and worked in and around that space for a while. It, my heart wasn't there. Uh, during that time, I started a blog called The Beautiful Struggler, uh, which... I got serious about, if you will, in 2007. So right after I, um, right before I graduated from college, and within a couple months, I realized I really liked writing and I liked communicating with people online. Because this was back in the days of MySpace and um, everyone's blog ended in Blogspot.com, and, and comment sections were not things to be avoided. They were treasured. It was a great opportunity to talk to other people. Um, there were a number of us who... So you were blogging before it was cool. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You go part... back to MySpace days, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I was definitely an early adopter with social media in a lot of ways uh, relative to some of my friends and relative to some, you know, some other really talented writers I know that kind of had to learn the internet after the fact, you know, where there were some of us that had been in that space for a long time. Um, but I think that's when I started blogging Folks like Damon Young and Panama from Very Smart Brothers and Lovey and Demetria Lucas um, and Josen Cummings. Like, a number, I'd say about half of us were traditionally trained journalism, you know, graduates. And the other half were people like myself that just liked writing, um, just kind of found their way into it. And so from there, I ended up getting a job with Ebony. Uh, I was part of the team that launched their website in 2012. Um, I was there for almost five years and had a lot to do with kind of the reimagining of the brand and, um, you know, bringing it into the modern day before its uh, current set of challenges, if you will. Um, and then after that, I did a two-year stint at Interactive One. I was the VP of News and Men's Programming. And prior to having those jobs, which were both great experiences, and I learned so much about digital media and would like to think that I'm part of a group of editorial um, thinkers and leaders that really kind of like defined how, um, you know, my generation and folks a little bit younger than us and a little bit older than us use the internet uh, to talk about issues of race, gender, sexuality, identity, really. Um, I did a whole lot of freelance writing uh, before and a bit during those two jobs. And Gotten the opportunity to speak at a lot of schools and be on a few kind of cool TV shows and radio shows and a lot of podcasts. And um, last summer, I was at a moment where I realized that the more my career trended upward on paper, the less happy I was um, in the space. Uh, digital media, as you know, is incredibly difficult. There, there's still a lot of questions about sustainability. It's and a depression. Uh, it's a depression. It's a depression, yeah. Yeah, yeah you it's know. It's a super hard game right now. 
Yeah. yeah. And, and so much of the priority is around uh, clicks and revenue as opposed to quality of substance. content and substance. And I really just want to make work of substance and I want to write again. And so I am now full time freelance. I'm working on a book and a television pilot. And I'm also uh, doing some communications consulting because I learned so much in that space and things that I can help brand or have helped brands and individuals and political campaigns uh, with. But I'm, I'm, you know, untethered in certain ways now. Do you hold the duopoly of uh, Google and Facebook who are taking, of course, a massive amount of advertising revenue out of the system? A lot of the advertising, of course, uh, is going to automated systems where... People like yourself who want to write about things that they're passionate about, who want to write about or critique the establishment or write about helping people or their community, that can no longer be ad supported. Uh, of course, Google and Facebook taking a lot out the system, but offering very little. Do you hold these beasts that I would call them, these tech beasts out in California, hold them accountable for taking so much value in life out of the system where to be a healthy community, you're going to need kind of quality content and ad-supported content, essentially. Absolutely. Um, you know, both platforms are really, or companies, I should say, are a gift and a curse in so many ways. I think of Google as a, a more significant in terms of the gifts that it offers and how it has uh there are things about that that come from the Google universe, I think, that improve the quality of our life in ways that um, Facebook has not. Uh, again, Facebook wasn't. That's an important distinction. They're yeah. not. They don't necessarily deserve in the same. Right. Watch. Yeah, yeah. You know, um, Google allows us to access so much information. Um, you know, valid information and misinformation, and Facebook you know, knowingly uh, trafficked in uh, the spread of misinformation um, in some very dangerous ways, considering uh, the outcome of the last political uh, or presidential election and, you know, uh, down ticket races that have happened before, uh, during and after. So, you know, it, it's sad. Um, I, I still use Google and Facebook, especially Google products, um, it's almost impossible to divorce yourself from them entirely, at least Google. Yeah. Uh, you know, and again, I think there's so many great things about Google, um, you know, but uh, but we're still figuring out what monetization looks like for content creators. And that's part of the reason that I don't want to be in the business in that way again. You yeah. know, I didn't want to be in, man I, I didn't feel that I should continue to be in management or, or running sites because I'm not, you know, the person who has the gift of really understanding how to make these things make money. Now, I know what good quality content is. Uh, I know how to produce it on a dime. I know how to produce it with a budget. Again, to, to sit in a leadership role in this space, you really have to think about the money in ways that I would prefer not to. Yeah, so uh, with the rising inequality in America uh, specifically, I think it could be explained in part where... The folks like yourself and other content creators, they're creating content, let's say on YouTube. And so you create a lot of content, a lot of content that consumers love, but YouTube does not, Google does not pay the content creator enough to compensate for their time to make, to make a living. However, uh, Google may share 30% with the content creator 
But the real value is not in the revenue share. The real value that they're pimping off the content creators is going to the share price. Uh, so as, as Google, you know, uh, the share price goes up towards a, a trillion dollars, that's on the backs of a lot of the media partners, the content creators. And so they're giving just a very little piece of that advertising piece, but that's not necessarily the real value. The value is being shifted to the shareholders. And uh, essentially, you, you know, you have a problem that, that we're uh, facing now. Uh, you wrote a beautiful piece that I saw online called The Power and Fragility of Black Media. And I read a point of view in being in the digital media industry that's not appreciated in our culture, meaning that you knew that there were problems in black media in terms of, hey, people getting paid late or this is out of place and this and that. But you had a certain sympathy in terms of, hey, the same website may be producing business content. They may get a $50 CPM or advertising revenue per thousand impressions, but this black company is getting $20 and you want to compare the black media who has to fight these battles and get less for the same thing. You want to compare them to New York times and compare them to other outlets. And you know, that kind of nuance is not really out there or, or talked about. Can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write that piece? Sure, and thank you. Um, I was actually approached by the Columbia Journalism Review for a package that they were doing about, you know, the lack of diversity in newsrooms and what it's like to be the only black person in one. And I said, you know, that has not been my experience, but because um, I've been very deliberate throughout my career, there were certainly times, you know, especially I was at Ebony for five years and was able to amass a certain amount of visibility in the business. Um, this was back when black, NMSNBC had black folks on every hour, you know, and, and I was one of them. So other opportunities um, with white-owned, uh, white-led media companies certainly came my way, but I was so committed to staying uh, in black media for a number of reasons, and, and one of them being that I didn't have to check my culture or my identity at the door and I didn't have to explain it to people either you know Trayvon Martin gets killed we're all upset Mike Brown gets killed we're all upset you know um Trump is elected everybody you know for the most part in the office is feeling something uh un feeling unsettled or just up you know scared and I um I still would say I'm unwilling in any sort of full-time capacity. And I've certainly, you know, freelanced and done projects for other spaces, but would not, you know, knowing what I know about the insides of, of black media companies and the two that I worked for were among, you know, either the largest or the best known. Again, just like, like you said, that advertisers do not value them even when they have the impressions, yeah. you know, uh, or, or the subscribers or, you know, the circulation rates uh, of their competitors or, or other similar spaces, I should say, that are designed for mainstream or, or non-black audiences that advertisers, you know, don't treat them the same way. So beyond saying we're not going to give you the same amount of money that we would to, you know, say Architectural Digest, right, or, or Vanity Fair, which are super niche. They don't have high circulation rates. You know, this is not just for mainstream audiences. This is for affluent audiences, right? But people want to spend a lot of money with those brands um, because they're reaching consumers that are high dollar, you could argue, but also because they're doing, you know, they're not doing black content. Um, they're not talking to black people. But beyond uh, the, the lack of money, there was also 
this idea that black content was harder to manage, that it was more controversial. So anything related to sex was scary brand to advertisers. Yeah. Right, brand safety. You know, for us, like the things that... You know, I remember, it, would, it would be policed different. Is that what you're saying? Yes, yeah, policed yeah. very differently. You know, I remember Jezebel years ago, um, back when I was part of, you know, Gawker Media Network, of course, had a column um, called Pot Psychology, where, you know, a young white gay male writer and a young white female writer would get high and answer, you know, on marijuana and answer reader um, advice questions. And it was hilarious. You know, they did it on camera and there was a written portion to it, I believe. And I just remember thinking, like, we could never go there in our wildest dreams. You know, Vice does a lot of content around pot um, complex. And I remember, you know, fast forward to uh, 2017, I did something uh, marijuana related for my last employer. And internally, there was some serious discomfort. You know, there were some concessions that had to be made. And overwhelmingly, there was a sense um I shouldn't say overwhelmingly, but there are a number of people uh, above my pay grade, and I was the VP, so I wasn't a junior employee, that felt that we were doing something destructive uh, or inappropriate, you know, in terms of the ability to sell the brand, not necessarily from a moral standpoint, but this is in the era of marijuana legalization and decriminalization measures across the country, you know, and it's becoming a part of pop culture, you know, beyond what it was in the 70s was when, you know, you would call it a punchline, really, and, you know, all, all the hippies are smoking or, you yeah. know, it's becoming normalized. But for us, and, and something that people are using for medicinal reasons, you know, and this wasn't just a fun celebration of weed. This was about the social justice implications of decriminalization and legalization, the financial opportunities that exist for communities that have been uh, targeted by the war on drugs and, you know, the medicinal properties in addition to, you know, the, the social uh, enjoyment or whatever. But the idea that, you know, cannabis represents something that we need to take seriously and a lot of us need to reevaluate our attitudes about it, even if we choose never to indulge in it. Yeah. You know, and so that that was not a clear, unequivocal, yeah, we need to do this because this is where the people are right now. We need to make sure that our audience is getting that information, that there was fear that this would cost us money. Um, you know, just really spoke to the limitations of being in black media spaces. You're one of the few people who spoke out when CNN fired Mark Lamont Hill over his support for Palestine. Yes. And it's something that I still talk about today. Why don't people understand, it seems like, that's a big issue meaning that if we have people the people who are actually courageous to speak out on these issues and we allow the mainstream media in the establishment elite forces in the society to suppress your activists such as mark lamont hill tamika mallory these forces if you allow them to crack down on your activists the courageous folks these forces can optimize the community in a way where you're only allowed to talk about MAGA. You're only allowed to bang against MAGA. You're only allowed to be vocal about issues that we approve of. And I feel like they have us in a box where stop talking about foreign policy. And they had that same view with Dr. King with Vietnam. But can you talk about what's so frustrating in terms of how that went down with Mark Lamont Hill? 
Absolutely. And full disclosure, Mark is one of my dearest friends. Um, so I was bothered by it uh, as a black woman, as somebody who works in media, um, you know, as somebody who has opinions that are not always in alignment with the mainstream and, and who knows how easily I, too, can be silenced. But I was also, of course, offended as his friend and as someone who understood what he was saying. And it, it's not that I think he's incapable of saying something inappropriate or wrong. But what he said um, was taken out of context and used to portray him as someone who he's not. And I, I think it's important that we call that out when we see it because it's dangerous. And it doesn't matter, you know, if this person shares your viewpoints or not. For me, it was less about what he said and, and defending the point that he was making uh, than it was saying, look at what they're doing to him and why. You know, um, Mark has been radical, you know, and, and a radical leftist for a long time in terms of his thinking. But this is a scholar, you know, this isn't someone who, and an activist, but this isn't someone who was calling out for some sort of, you know, warlike measures or violence. This, he was saying, look, we're not going to see peace in this region, you know, until certain things change. And I, you know, think we should respect the right of people to feel otherwise. But to silence him, you know, to remove him from the largest platform, because, you know, Mark always had 100 jobs, but to take away the largest platform uh, that he has when other commentators on the network have said things that were equally um, as perhaps incendiary, but in the other direction, you know, um, opposing. You mean against a Palestinians right, and Muslims? Anti, yeah. Right, anti, yeah. uh, you know, Islamophobic things, uh, anti-Palestinian sentiment, and or, or having relationships with people um, that, that espouse those views. And then to see young black progressives uh, be spanked um, for standing with Palestine, it, it's, it's unconscionable. Do you believe that Tamika Mallory's situation should be in this same issue of where censorship of black voices who step out that box. I, I think particularly that, as it relates to Palestine and the foreign affairs of America. I think that, you know, one, uh, Linda Sarsour of the women's March is Palestinian and, and has been a vocal opponent of Zionism for, you know, the entirety of her activist career. And that's something that has taught, you know, led the, Women's March uh, organization to be targeted um, for protests. And again, I'm not denouncing uh, the opposition to the way that these two people or these three people feel. You know, it's just that taking away or, or condemning them for it, um, you know, closing doors to them, closing platforms to them, um, cutting checks. Cut, I mean, know, trying to take away their ability to take care of their families yeah. because. They side with Palestinians. And the way I feel is the American establishment, they have black America in a box where we don't care if you talk about Donald Trump. We don't care if you just keep on, you know, protesting Donald Trump. But these are the issues where if you see MAGA over in Palestine, if you see MAGA in terms of Netanyahu and the far right in Israel, United States has a far right and Israel has a far right and the president of Israel is on that far right. But I think there's a lot of deceit among Democrats and liberals where, hey, if you can bang against MAGAism in the United States, 
Why can't you bang against MAGA in Israel? Right. Why, why are things so different? These are We're talking about principles, values, and white supremacy. But there's so many people who's scared to talk about MAGA when it's in over there in Palestine. Right. Reverend Wright. Uh, this I know this is coming out the blue. No, no one has been talking about Reverend Wright. However, there was an article in the Huffington Post uh, where the writer titled this story, Jeremiah Wright knew what America was becoming. The Obamas can't see what it is. And of course, Michelle Obama's book, uh, Becoming, came out last year. It, you know, it did extremely well. But there's a passage in the book. Some people are taking issue with the false equivalency where she compares Reverend Wright's statements where she says she wasn't in those sermons. Although they've been at going following Reverend Wright for 20 years right. and he baptized the, the kids and married them. Michelle Obama says, hey, look, we weren't at those sermons that you guys are talking about. But let me use her words to make sure I don't take this out of uh, context. We have lived for years with the narrow-mindedness of some of our elders having accepted that no one is perfect, particularly those who'd come of age in a time of segregation. Perhaps this had caused us to overlook the more absurd parts of Reverend Wright's spitfire preaching, even if we hadn't been present for any of the sermons in question. Seeing an extreme version of his vitriol broadcast in the news, though, we were appalled. The whole affair was a reminder of how our country's distortions about race could be two-sided, that the suspicion and stereotyping ran both ways. How does that make you feel where white supremacy and Reverend Wright's statements can be put in the same box? I love Michelle Obama yeah. dearly. Um, she is infinitely less complicated to me or my relationship to her is certainly less complicated than it is to her husband um yeah. you know she's not a politician but you know that passage which i did read um you know as it starts to make the rounds really disappointed me you know i think a lot of us had hoped you saw that when yeah yeah that when you know they left office that she would be unfiltered in certain ways and she has been to some extent um and there have been things that she's you know said off the cuff and, and you know just kind of let her hair down and talked about some of her discomforts in the white house and you know her some of her thoughts around the current administration but i really would have thought that you know both or either of them in their memoirs would you know, exonerate Reverend Wright and talk about why they did not feel they were able to defend him as it was happening, you know, which was an understandable concession to me in certain ways. But now that you're outside of that situation, there are no more races to run. Um, you're no longer in office. I I'd have hoped that, you know, she would have been not forgiving per se, but just, you know, clear on the hypocrisy of, of comparing him to uh, you know, to hate groups and, and um, racist. And I think, you know, I've come across other class mobile black folks that achieve a certain level of success that and yeah. wealth that disconnects them from, and we certainly see it in celebrities, you know, where even if they, it, it seems like in so many ways their hearts and minds are with the people, they still have a level of, I don't want to just say optimism but maybe naivete or disconnect from um what it looks what it means to be black for the rest of us you know and so even if you don't agree with the vitriol 
it, it's hard to understand why someone as learned as she is or as he is would not completely um, at least understand and respect the sentiment. From my perspective, when I heard Barack Obama speak and he started, you know, going to Wisconsin, you can go to YouTube and he starts saying, you know, you've been hoodwinked, you've been bamboozled. I knew then that there was something in him where, it, it, my opinion, he was one of us when I heard him. And he started like a, uh, he had like a grin where it's kind of like I'm playing on a level where a lot of these white people don't know. Yeah. And then I read his book and he talked about how he liked reading Final Calls and this yeah. and that. Some of us, I think, can live with Obama saying, look, for me to go to the White House, I got to distance myself from some of this stuff. Right. Meaning that for me to be em embraced by a racist country, I need to part ways with certain stuff from a military strategy, political strategy perspective can live with. But the way you do that to right. your point in terms of your pastor of 20 years, yeah, this is the South side before the white house. Right. I just, you know, Michelle Obama looks like somebody else may have kind of, are you think those are like, you know, that's not the publisher or, you know, I, I, I don't know the ins and outs of the process of, you know, her book coming together. Um, you know, I, I wonder, was that a concession? You know, there's still that desire to hold on to, Do you, you didn't really mean that, did you? You know, did somebody clean this up? Did you, you know, did you fight over like, okay, we can leave this in, this in, one of these things has to go and you'd yeah. rather talk about, you know, something else that might've bothered people yeah. and, and to clean that up. But, uh, you know, as, as someone who's from Chicago, and did not grow up in the church, but Reverend Wright is and was such an important figure in the community, you know, and as was, um, as is Trinity Baptist Church, you know, yeah. I, it was because of their college tour that I was able to go visit Howard, um, as a junior and, uh, you know, confirm what I thought I knew, which was that I wanted to be there more than anything else in the world when I graduated high school, um, you know, the ways that he and Father Michael Flager and, um, you know, other members of the religious community in Chicago, you know, including Mr. Farrakhan, have put their differences aside and, and you know, rallied together, um, you know, in response to the violence in some of our communities and, um, you know, just some of the terrible racism, uh, the, the Midwestern racism that folks weren't really familiar with until um, Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. I just think that he deserves so much better than that. And I would have rather that she didn't address it at all um, and had to deal with the oversight than to continue to uh, double down on this image of him as some sort. You know, I even wonder, you know, she said she wasn't there for those sermons. And it's entirely possible, you know, certainly a lot of black middle class folks that come, you know, to church for holidays, you know, they get there when they can get there, but yeah, they're not but always there. But I wonder when she says, that image of him on TV didn't look like what she knew. And I wonder, maybe you were there and you didn't realize you know, that's that what you she, were there. Yeah, I didn't read the whole passage, but she said she didn't realize, she didn't catch some things. But that's hard for me to believe. Obama said in his book, he used to buy the final call. Yeah. Obama has read, in my belief, so much Malcolm X. When he went out campaigning, he's using Malcolm X's words. Right. Some of the Republicans were right to identify Barack Obama that he had a knowledge of self. They knew that he wasn't your average black man running for office. They, 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 I think they picked up that this guy had a knowledge of self. He was one, one of us. I cannot 
reconcile that you didn't know Reverend Wright was about that life. There's well, multiple I, videos, yeah. like in terms of speaking out against America, speaking out against white supremacy. Oh no, I'm, I'm. I guess what I'm saying is, I don't think she realized it was a problem until someone else told her it was. Yeah, you know, okay, and she yeah, might have yeah. sat there and nodded her head, and you know, because that's how older black folks, especially, and a lot of black folks her age, speak. You know, and, and that she might have sat there and been nodding and understanding it and totally getting it, but through this new lens, and maybe it's a new lens that she had to adopt to be to serve as the first lady of the United States. Yeah. I would never want to to hold any sort of political office. You know, I would yeah. not date. I, I wouldn't want to date someone who had those ambitions or who does. Um, simply because I know I can't put aside my identity as a black woman, you know, to, I, there's certain things, concessions and, and things that they had to make and do and hands they had to shake and people they had to sit next to. And I could never do those things. Yeah. You know, I could never you leave could, right, you don't right think you behind. Can, you can make the compromise. Absolutely not. No. They have a, they have a $20 million check. They want you to write, Hey, when black people speak out against white people, it's just like white people speaking out against black people trying to. Get the boot off our neck. I mean, as long as there's no clause in the contract <laughs> that says two weeks later, I can't be like, just yeah. kidding. Um, yeah, so I'm a fan of Michelle Obama. I'm a fan of the Obamas. However, uh, it's not, I don't want to isolate this, but uh, whether it's Mark Lamont Hill or this passage, there's a sentiment in America, and some of our people are picking up, where if the former slave speaks out in the pain and suffering and the trauma that we've been under in the hells of North America, that when we speak out, you may hear some cuss words, you may hear some bad words, but this is a former slave speaking out who's tired of the denial of freedom, justice, and equality. So if we speak out and use words like cracker or, or something else, it's different than a Donald Trump, a Steve King, or that hiring manager at Google, where they have all the power to enforce ideologies. But when black people are speaking out in terms of activism, fighting for freedom and justice and equality, that's different. We can't be under the same law, in my opinion. Yeah. In terms of this false equivalency where, hey, if you say this about white person, uh, that's just like the Google executive or the you know the the Wells Fargo executive yeah. saying it. Yeah, it, it, I think it's always been that way. You know that yeah. both sidesism. Um, you know, uh, Trump so famously uh, put a spotlight on when he said there's good people on both sides talking about charlottesville yeah. after a young white woman had been murdered you know by somebody who drove his car into a crowd of protesters with the intention of killing people you know to still say there's good people on both sides i mean one america is so largely hinged upon the idea that whiteness is inherently good you know and so they'll identify oh we've got some bad apples but ultimately you know most of us are good and you all have to prove yourselves as individuals at best and at worst that none of us are good i'm gonna leave reverend right with this when we look at maga maga america and you look at a lot of the darkness in america being shown to the world it's out in public reverend Wright was right Reverend Wright, I believe, was on the side of God when he was making those sermons in terms of he's telling you, goddamn America. He, the MAGA was here before Donald Trump exposed it and created a cult. Reverend Wright was shining that light for the people to see. And, you know, of course, he was taken out for that, at least publicly. This is part one. 
tune in to the next episode for part two. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Go. You can check me out at Jamarley Martin on Twitter and also come check us out at moguldom.com. That's M-O-G-U-L-D-O-M.com. Be sure to subscribe to our daily newsletter. You can get the latest information on crypto, tech, economic empowerment, and politics. Let's go.